Good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Um, as Claire mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. Uh, and it's going to take me a little bit longer than normal to get there, but that is where we are headed. And so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, and I would just encourage you to um, get to Matthew chapter 2, where we'll begin in a few moments. Um, there is a question that from time to time, um, well, frankly, it bothers me. Like it starts to linger in my mind and my heart in a way that um, I just can't shake it. Right? It gets under my skin and it plants itself in my heart. And I'll be thinking about it when I'm driving in the car, I'll be thinking about it when I'm trying to fall asleep at night. I'll be thinking about it when I'm walking my dumb dog. Like it just, just lingers there and, and it bothers me. Um, and I wanted to share that question with you as we started this morning. But um, to share that question with you, I really need to set it up first. And so let me set it up um, by reading. You don't need to turn here. But let me read Psalm 27 verse 4 for us. David writes this psalm and he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so David here, he says that there's one thing that he wants, one thing that he desires, right? He could have everything else and not be satisfied if he didn't have this one thing. He could have this one thing and have nothing else and be satisfied. What is that one thing? He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and in the house of the Lord have the ability to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now we agree that it would be awesome to be in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, right? But would we agree with David that like, that's the one thing that we desire, that we seek after, that we long for. Do we agree with David that if we had that one thing and nothing else, it would be enough? And if we had everything else but didn't have that one thing, it wouldn't be enough. One thing that I seek after, David says. I think about that verse and this question, it bothers me. Think about that verse or I think about that question when um, I think about Psalm 42, verse 1. Again, you don't need to turn here, but this is what the psalmist says there. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, this is an Instagram verse, right? This is the kind of verse that we think of when we picture this like sweet pastoral scene, you know, a cute little deer like Bambi, you know, lapping water next to this like flowing brook through this beautiful picturesque valley. But that's not really the picture of the psalm at all. And you, we would see that if we read the whole context of the psalm. Like for example, in verse nine, Psalm 42 says this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
And so the psalmist here, he's not, you know, in this quaint, gentle, beautiful scene, lapping up water like Bambi. No, he's, he's lapping up water to stave off death, right? He's saying in his moment of desperation that the thing that he needs most, the thing that his soul thirsts for is God. When I think about that verse, this question, it bothers me. This is Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist says, everything that I have, it's from you. There's nothing that I desire but you. What I do have, my flesh and my heart, they may fail me, but I will not be moved if I have you because God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When I think about the picture that that Psalm paints, right, this question, it gets under my skin and it bothers me. This isn't just a thing that occurs to me in the Psalms, by the way. I can show you that this is really a whole Bible issue Uh, For example, this is the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Habakkuk's a prophet, and he writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so Habakkuk's prophecy, it comes at a time when Israel is about to be invaded by her enemies. And Habakkuk has the lucky job of actually proclaiming to the people of God that those enemies are going to come and they're going to destroy everything, right? They're going to burn Israel to the ground and haul people into exile. And so the reason why the fig tree is not going to blossom, the reason why there is not going to be fruit on the vines, the reason why the olive tree will fail and the fields will yield no food, the reason why all of these awful things are going to happen is because these invaders are going to come. But still, Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Though everyone and everything is burned away, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing too. For example, I'm thinking about Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight. The apostle Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In the verses immediately before this, Paul, he, he trots out his spiritual resume, right? He lists all of the reasons why the world that he lives in might think that he's awesome, 
right? He mentions his education, his ethnic background, his religious background. He mentions his personal zeal and righteousness, all of the reasons why the watching world might think that the Apostle Paul is incredible. And he says that compared to knowing Christ, those things are rubbish. And frankly, the English translation of that particular Greek word, it's being polite when it says rubbish, really it means like dung or excrement. Paul says that compared to knowing Jesus, everything in life, it's a pile of excrement. Do you get a sense of the picture that I'm painting here? Right, as we think just for a few minutes about the hearts and minds, the attitudes, the posture of these biblical writers, Right, when I read this stuff, there's this question that just, it burrs its way into my soul. I think of this question when I read the writings of significant figures in church history too. For example, this is what the church father Augustine wrote. He's talking about his conversion and he said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You, God, drove them from me. You, who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You, who are sweeter than all pleasures. Now, I have a good friend who named his son after the church father, Augustine. If you know anything about Augustine's life, that's actually a pretty bold move because Augustine was this notorious partier and womanizer, right? Augustine, right, he, he before he came to know the Lord, um, slept around and partied hard. And so Augustine's a man who knows the taste of good wine. He says that Christ is sweeter than that pleasure. He, he's a man who knows the taste of romantic love, and he says... That Christ is sweeter than those pleasures. So often we think that Jesus is better than the sorrows and the hardships that we encounter in life. But Augustine, rightly, he says that Jesus is even better than the good stuff in life, right? He says, You are sweeter than all pleasures. I think about that, and this question, it just bothers me. Here's one, one final example. This is what the Puritan pastor John Owen once wrote. He said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections, until all things below become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but what Owen says is that he has this vision of the glory of Christ that is so sweet and pure and beautiful to him that when he compares every earthly thing to the glory of Christ, even the good things that we encounter on earth, even the things that we long for on earth, right, the best that life has to offer, when he compares those things to the glory of Christ, they are like a dead and deformed thing by comparison. When I think about that, right, there's something about what Owen says that just, like it really bothers me. Right, there's this question that, that lingers in my heart and that I can't shake. And that question is, 
What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? Why don't we feel that way? When we consider the the attitudes and the heart postures of the biblical writers, when we consider the great figures of faith from the history of the church, like why don't we rejoice in the Lord like they do? Habakkuk, he says, right, no matter what happens, Lord, even if you destroy everything, I'm going to rejoice in you. Why don't we rejoice in Jesus like that? Augustine says, you are sweeter than all earthly pleasures. Why don't we pursue Jesus like Augustine does? Do you ever have this question? Right? Does this ever occur to you? Does it ever bother you the way that it bothers me? Don't you ever wonder the same thing? Shouldn't we find more joy and more delight in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us? I mean, we were dead in our sin, the Bible says. Right? You don't raise yourself to life when you're dead in sin. You need someone and something from outside of you to raise you to life. And that is exactly what God has done through grace and through faith. Right? He sent his one and only son to be a perfect human being, to live a perfect and righteous life, to die a horrific substitutionary death in your place and in mine, paying the full penalty for our sin so that he might credit to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus and raise us to new everlasting resurrection life in Jesus that we might enjoy all of eternity with him in the fullness of joy in his perfect presence. We were so bad that Jesus had to do those things. We were so bad in our sin that Jesus had to die for us, yet we are so loved by God in Christ that Jesus chose to come and live and die for us. And yet, we think about that truth, and and frankly, so many of us, we just have so little passion for the Lord. Right, if you took the pulse of our walk with Christ, like that pulse would be one of casual complacency in which we we go through the motions of following Jesus but the truth is there's just so little passion to it right we roll into church try not to be late maybe we're engaged in a small group community so we're plugged into a life group or something like that where you know for a couple of hours each week we open our bibles with our friends outside of the church gathering Maybe even we serve in a ministry, the connections team, the security team, we're discipling young children and life kids, but that's it, right? Like that's the Jesus portion of our lives. And the truth is that there is just so little passion in the way that we follow the Lord. That's my question. Like why do the person and the work of Jesus seem to make so little difference in our lives. I think as we sit under that question today, we're gonna be helped by the very familiar, but very significant events of the first part of Matthew 2. This is a story that helps us answer this question. So let's read Matthew 2, 1 through 12 together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the great star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now there are at least two historical inaccuracies in the famous Christmas song, We Three Kings. At least two, there might be more. Um, The first historical inaccuracy is that it calls these guys kings. Right, we saw from Matthew's description of this event that these men are not kings, right? He calls them, in my English translation, wise men in verse one. The Greek word there is magi. You probably are familiar with that word. A magi, a wise man in this context. Man, think equal parts, fortune cookie, and horoscope, right? These were dudes who were like priests of some kind, but they studied the stars and they were really into like an early version of astrology. And so they knew about the zodiac signs and these kinds of things. But these guys, they were not kings on any level. The second thing that we should note is that there were not necessarily three of them, right? Tradition says that there were three of them primarily because they bring three gifts to the young Christ child, according to verse 11. And so we assume that, you know, three gifts means three dudes bringing those gifts. But that's not necessarily valid logic, is it? Right? If on Christmas morning I open up a Rolex watch and a full-length mink coat and a diamond-studded pinky ring, those are all things that are on my list, of course. Right? If I open up those three gifts, that does not necessarily presume that there will be three different people giving me those three gifts. Right? That's not logical, is it? Right? One person with very questionable fashion sense and too much money to burn could easily give me all three of those gifts. And so, um, yeah, we don't necessarily know how many of these magi, how many of these wise men there were. And it's important that we, we point that out because really this is not the story of three kings visiting baby Jesus. This is a story of two kings. It's a story of King Herod and of King Jesus. And really it's a story illustrating how different people respond to the news of the coming of King Jesus. That's what I want to point out today is just really three different responses to King Jesus that we see here in the story. The first is Herod's response, and that's a response of hostility. 
right? King Herod, he's hostile to King Jesus. Let me point that out again if I can. Let me read verses one through three. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. By the way, when you read this, just the number of times you read the word king makes it very clear that we're talking about this contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. But in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's interesting, isn't it? And all Jerusalem with him. What's going on? Well, we're gonna talk more about King Herod next week because he's a central figure in the story that we'll study together at the end of Matthew 2. But for now, just a little bit of background. Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Empire in the year 37 BC, um, and he was just a notoriously bad dude. When he was appointed king over Judea, he immediately killed anyone and everyone who was related to his predecessor because he didn't want there to be any kind of um, anyone who might be around to contest the fact that he was now the rightful king of Judea. So he was just, just notoriously vicious, right? That was essentially establishing the pattern for his brutality as king. Um, he was also really a suspicious king. There was a point in Herod's life when he suspected that his wife and two sons were involved in a plot against him, and so he had them killed. Herod also, in his kind of paranoia, um, decreed before he died that on the day of his death, he wanted every notable person in Jerusalem on the day of his death to be executed on the day of his death simply because he wanted the day of his death to be a really sad day. And he thought, if you're not gonna be sad when I die, maybe you'll be sad when all of your friends and neighbors are dead too. And so he decreed that you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people would be executed in Jerusalem on the day of his death. Like he is just known for terror and ferocity as king of Judea. Which is why, in verse three, when Herod is troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Herod's just that kind of dude. Right? When he's upset, everybody around him is upset too. When he's irritated, everyone around him is irritated too. It's kind of a bit like a toddler, right? In the middle of a temper tantrum, like if you catch that toddler's eye in the middle of that temper tantrum and you are not as furious as they are, that will only increase how furious they are, right? And I remember very well, like my own children, being amused by whatever it was that they were throwing a fit over. And when they caught sight of my amusement, that just increased their anger, right? That's the situation here. Herod, a terrible king, is furious. He's stirred up. He's agitated. He's troubled, and when Herod's troubled, everybody around Herod is troubled too. Why was Herod troubled? Well, it's clear he's troubled because King Jesus represents to Herod a threat, right? If, as the Magi say, the king of the Jews has been born, then Herod must realize that his days as king are numbered. Herod for all his ferocity, is intelligent enough to know 
that if Jesus is king of the Jews, then he, Herod, isn't. I wonder if some of us still follow Herod's logic today. I wonder if one of the reasons why we walk through life with so little passion for Jesus is because we recognize that if Jesus is truly king, then we are not. Right? If Jesus has, as he'll say at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth, we sense that that means that we don't have authority over our own lives. And so we recognize that if Jesus is king, then that, like Herod, it fundamentally dethrones us from having authority and autonomy and control over our lives. So many of us, we functionally live like Herod. We like to pretend that we're king. We like to pretend that we have a say over the direction of our lives. We have a say over our circumstances. We like to pretend that we have control over the rising and falling of our lives, over the number of our days, over the hairs on our head. We like to say and pretend that we're king. And if we recognize that Jesus is king, that just fundamentally topples our illusion of control and power and authority. By the way, I hope you realize that that is always an illusion, right? We never really actually have control over anything. You can be today in perfect health, right? Somebody who takes all of the right vitamins and exercises regularly and eats a really clean diet and rubs yourself in essential oils or whatever else that it is that you think you need to do in order to be healthy. You can, you can you know, devote your life to physical fitness and health and then tomorrow contract some as yet unknown variant of some microscopic and unseen virus and the next day die from that virus. You don't have any control over that. There are things that you can do and things that you can't do, but at the end of the day, it is not you, it is the king of the universe who determines the number of your days. And so masked, unmasked, vaxxed, unvaxxed, boosted, unboosted, it doesn't ultimately matter because you and I, we do not have control over our existence. Any illusion that we are king, right, it's just that. It's an empty illusion because only Jesus is king. Herod is troubled because he knows that. If that doesn't trouble you on some level, maybe you haven't really realized that. Have you recognized and surrendered to the authority and rule and reign of King Jesus? The second response to Jesus here is the response of indifference that we see in the religious leaders. This is a subtle one, but I don't want you to miss it. Look again at verse four. Herod, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And they know the answer. They tell him immediately, in Bethlehem of Judea, this is Micah 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, a king who will shepherd my people, Israel. So I want you to think about the response of the chief priests and the scribes. These are men who would have spent their days copying Old Testament manuscripts, 
right? They would have spent their days with the Isaiah scroll out and open, studying it, copying it, interpreting it, teaching it. There's a man who knew backwards and forwards what God's word in the Old Testament said. When the Magi come from the east and they say the king's been born, Herod, he knows immediately who to ask. Where is that king going to be born? He goes to these chief priests and the scribes and they would have known immediately what the answer was. Micah 5 told us it's in Bethlehem in Judea. But I want you to notice the fact that they knew the answer, but they didn't really seem to care about the answer. We have no record of these chief priests and scribes being among the posse that goes to investigate this news of the coming of Christ. Bethlehem, by the way, is about six miles from Jerusalem. It's not like it's a long walk, where they could have been there in an afternoon, but these chief priests and scribes, man, they're so content with their religious activity and their religious rituals that they can't be bothered. They seem to stay in Jerusalem even when news of the Christ child in Bethlehem reaches their ears. They don't care at all. They're unmoved, unimpressed, indifferent. Brothers, sisters, that should make us tremble. These are people who devote their lives to reading and studying God's word. And then when God's king appears... They are indifferent. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you, it can happen to me. That should make us tremble. We can, and we do, see that same kind of indifference in the world today. We can and do see that same kind of indifference in the church today, even in our own hearts today. This is what keeps me up at night. We can hear the news of King Jesus and respond like he's nothing at all. We can respond with indifference, sitting in Jerusalem, content with our religious ritual when the Christ child is only six miles away in Bethlehem. There's a British Anglican bishop from the 19th century named J.C. Ryle This is what he wrote. He said, how often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the farther from God. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. The nearer the church, the farther from God. Now, Ryle does not mean, the bishop does not mean that if we feel far from God, the solution is to get farther from the church. Certainly not. He would say the opposite. But he's pointing out the danger of becoming complacent about and casual with sacred things and becoming indifferent. Right, and that's how that will work, right? We won't become... We won't become intolerant of sacred things. We won't despise sacred things. But we may become inoculated to them. We may wind up with just enough Jesus that he seems safe and familiar and comfortable. 
We may have just enough of him and know just enough about him to think that we don't need him more. We can become so content with our religious practice that we miss the fact that we're lost and we need a savior. That's indifference. I hope you know that King Jesus, he will not be indifferent to our indifference. In Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Jesus and he says this in John three twelve, he says about Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, I'm not a farmer, I don't know everything that there is to know about winnowing forks and threshing floors and wheat and chaff but that image of burning with unquenchable fire is impossible to miss. Brothers, sisters, there will be a day when Jesus reveals that he is not indifferent to our indifference. There will be a day when he will deal justly and severely with those who have been unmoved by his coming. My prayer is that instead of indifference, we would be people of deep conviction, of people who walk with a humble but penetrating understanding of our own sin, that we would be people who are marked by brokenness as we consider our need for God's grace. My prayer is that the Spirit would move us in the face of these things to treasure Christ above all things, to say, that compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is rubbish, trash, dung, excrement. And instead of choosing those things, to choose to worship him. That's how the Magi responded to Jesus. That's the third thing we see here. Right, we read it before, but again, just read verses nine through 11, because if we really think about it, this is a stunning picture. So after listening to the king, They, the Magi, went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then they gave him gifts, gifts fit for a king. Now don't let our familiarity with the historically inaccurate song ruin this picture for you, right? These men, they know nothing about Jesus. They know nothing about God's promises to his people. They know nothing about the promised Messiah who will come and make all things right for God's people. They simply see a star and a boy and his mother and they respond to him in worship, giving him gifts that are worthy of a king. And the question we have to wrestle with is do you respond to Jesus like that? Right, this Advent season, do you respond to Jesus like that? Every day that the Lord in his kindness gives you breath to breathe on this planet, do you respond to Jesus like that? Does your response to him reflect 
his infinite power and authority? Does your response to him reflect his infinite worth and value? Do you consider everything except for knowing Jesus to be rubbish? Do you rejoice in him when the fig tree doesn't blossom, when there are no sheep in the pen, when everything is burned up? Do you find Jesus to be sweeter than even the sweetest pleasure in this life? I pray that you do. And my fear, church, is that we would get swept up in a wave of something that resembles worship but actually isn't. Right? My fear is that we would be consumed by religious activity and no more. My fear is that we'd get just enough Jesus to think we're good, but in the end, be damned. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that it's only in your grace and your kindness that we are even able to see Jesus for who he is. We recognize that if you left us to ourselves, the coldness of our hearts, the blindness caused by our sin would prevent us from ever seeing Jesus to be the infinite treasure and king that he is. And so I pray that you would move in our hearts to help us to see Jesus truly, clearly. May we see that he is sweeter than any pleasure in this life. May we see that knowing him is worth more than anything that we can know in this life. May we believe that if we have Jesus and nothing else, we have everything we truly need. And realizing that, seeing that, believing that, may we be moved to worship him today and every day. May the supreme and infinite value and worth of your son shape the way we breathe in air and breathe out air today. May it shape the way that we gather with family this Christmas season. May it shape the way we give and open presents on Christmas morning. May it shape the way that we love our neighbors, steward our time and talents and treasure. May Jesus change everything because he's worthy of that. We pray these things in his name. Amen.